Welcome to Parallel Worlds, audio issue 10, June 2020. The best of this month's Parallel Worlds magazine, expertly recorded. It's Gorham over, Captain. Why Firefly being cancelled was a good thing. Firefly, the 2002 US TV series that took the idea of a space western literally by putting cowboys on a spaceship, was cancelled after just one season. Firefly later became something of a viral success and had a groundswell of support from an organized group of fans who petitioned Fox Television Network for a recommission of the series for a second season, without success. Most fans of the show consider it a tragedy that the story was never finished, that such potential was left hanging. But perhaps Firefly was cancelled at exactly the right moment. By cancelling the show when they did, did Fox accidentally create an enduring masterpiece? Showrunner Joss Whedon is best known for creating ensemble casts that lean heavily towards character dramas and snappy dialogue. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which ran from 1997 to 2003, is mainly about a bunch of American teenagers and one British librarian getting caught up in a hidden supernatural underworld. Scooby-Doo meets the X-Files. Spin-off series Angel, which ran from 1999 to 2004, adopted a darker, brooding take on the same universe, using pretty much the same character drama template. For Firefly, Whedon left the supernatural behind and took us 500 years in the future, on board the Firefly-class transport ship Serenity. Firefly is inarguably far more than the sum of its parts, and it's not difficult to imagine that, with less expert writing or directing or a less dedicated and charming cast, it would have flopped harder than... well, it actually did flop. Despite having all those great things, it was cancelled before the final three episodes even aired. If Firefly is good enough for a legion of fans to campaign for years to get more made, how did it fail so spectacularly? The full answer is complex, but the short answer is simple. Firefly sounds like bad fanfic. It's hard to explain what it's about because that's not what makes it good. The themes of the show, the sets, and the cast are all good, excellent even. However, it's the interaction between the cast members that makes Firefly truly outstanding. The show is set long after a joint American-Chinese colonization wave from a dying Earth reached a vast new solar system. A central near-utopian government exists, but for unexplained reasons, some people didn't want to be governed by them. And after a very brief asymmetric civil war, the independents were essentially disbanded. Firefly takes place some years after the war, which puts the cast in a setting that vaguely resembles North America after the 1861 to 1865 civil war. That's pretty much where the similarity ends though, other than most of the exterior locations resembling space age wild west towns populated by gun-toting cowboys. Fox, the American TV network, broadcasting the show had so little faith in the premise of the series that they stuck it in an awkward time slot, failed to adequately advertise it, and showed the episodes outside of their intended order. Firefly didn't get many viewers, and for an American show pre-mainstream internet and pre-streaming, that meant a quick death. 
It wasn't until the release of the series on DVD that the grassroots campaign to get it back on TV gained enough traction to attract Universal Studios. Part of the enduring appeal of Firefly is Joss Whedon and writer Tim Meniere's ability to create a world that felt alive and solid. Almost everything we know as viewers comes from one of the nine crew members of the Serenity, and they each have different viewpoints on almost everything. Captain Mal Reynolds, played by Nathan Fillion, is one of the main pillars of the show and the catalyst for the cast-based alchemy that makes Firefly really stand out as a sci-fi TV series even today. According to Mal and his loyal second-in-command, Zoe, the Alliance's terrible authoritarian organization that is callous, cruel, and unjust. But this is where Firefly becomes brilliant. In the first episode, the ship takes on passengers. One is a young, clean-cut off-worlder, Simon Tam. He explains he's a trauma surgeon at one of the Alliance's best hospitals, but for an unexplained reason, he's ended up on a dirtball backwater moon with a suspiciously human-sized cargo pod. Simon disagrees strongly with Mal about the Alliance, and through him we get to see a very different take on the universe. To Simon, the Alliance is generally a beacon of civilization and a great place to live. He laments having to leave it to travel to the edge of the system, which is, as we mentioned, full of dirtball cowboy towns where people shoot each other all the time. Also a resident of the Serenity, though not technically crew, is space prostitute Inara Seurat. Inara is also a fan of the Alliance and frequently clashes with Mal over the issue. She too regrets having to leave civilization for undisclosed reasons to ply her trade on a raggedy edge of space. The hired muscle, Jane Cobb, the wacky pilot, Hoban Wash Washburn, and the genius engineer, K. Winnett Lee, K. Lee Fry, don't seem to care at all, either saying they were neutral during the war or remaining silent during political discussions. These crew members tend to have a more rounded viewpoint, taking each incident as it comes, as opposed to Mal's insistence that the Alliance, and all that it represents, is fundamentally evil. Firefly is a good example of character-driven perspective analysis. We're riding along with the crew the whole time, and we see things their way. But we get clashes with other characters where it becomes clear that our heroes aren't usually the heroes. The show doesn't seek to neatly wrap everything up and often leaves open the question of who is really right. It's likely that all these open threads and ambiguity are what led so many enthusiasts to join the Browncoats, a fan community named after the rebels who fought against the Alliance in the fictional war of the show. Joss Whedon suggested that he'd originally planned seven seasons of the show, and it's obvious that the first episode set up narratives that would underpin the later seasons. The Browncoats fought passionately to get Fox, or anyone, to pick up Firefly and continue the adventure. This had worked before, most famously back in 1968, where a massive letter-writing campaign encouraged TV network NBC to run a third and final season of Star Trek, and later in the 1970s to help convince Paramount to make Star Trek the motion picture. Like Star Trek fans, the Browncoats wanted to get to live on the Serenity with the crew for just a little longer. To see if Kaylee and Simon ended up together. To find out if Mal and Inara kissed or killed each other to discover what Shepard Book's past might be, to find out if River was actually psychic, and so on. But very few browncoats stopped to ask, do we really want to know any of that? Two years after the cancellation, the big-budget film sequel to Firefly hit the cinemas, 
the uncreatively named Serenity. The title Firefly was still owned by the Fox network. The film is essentially Universal Pictures' response to the impressive DVD sales figures, which resulted from the Browncoats' efforts to get the series in front of as many people as possible. In 2005 Serenity, Whedon essentially took plans for a second season and edited them into a frantic two-hour CGI-rich caper that closed the loops on many hanging plot threads. Sadly, Serenity wasn't the box office success that fans or the studio had hoped for and hopes for any potential sequels were squashed. In hindsight, it's painfully clear that Firefly's home should always have been on TV. The premise was ill-suited to the necessary pacing and visuals required of sci-fi films, and the giant battle scenes, planet-hopping antics, and thrilling heroics just didn't quite land right. Firefly needs time to breathe and to develop the characters, and in a film there's just no time to do that. Judging by comments from reviews left on Amazon and IMDb, generally people who hadn't seen the 14 episodes of the series didn't feel the punch of the major developments and considered the film to be average, poor, or didn't watch it. Fans of the TV series generally rated the film far more highly, but many still felt robbed of the necessary time and development to get from where we left the crew in the series to where they are by the end of the film. Clearly the answer then is that Firefly should have had a second TV season at least, maybe all seven, in order to properly tell the story, right? Thanks to Serenity, we know what the general shape of the plot was going to be, give or take a few deaths, so we can imagine what a hypothetical season two and beyond might have been like. We know, for example, that the unpredictable, withdrawn teenage, maybe psychic River Tam, played by Summer Glau, was actually a top-secret government experiment to make a superweapon with superhuman strength, reflexes, psychic ability, and innate combat knowledge, because Joss Whedon loves his superpowered teenage girls. We know that the terrifying space zombie cannibals, the Reavers, were also a top-secret government project. We also know that the Alliance is happy to sanction a psychotic, sword-wielding mass murderer to hunt River down at all costs, even if that results in the death of thousands of people, including top Alliance scientists, peaceful Alliance colonists, and an entire Alliance battle fleet. Serenity does away with all of the subtlety and mystery developed through Firefly's 14 episodes in favor of easily identifiable sci-fi tropes. The film paints the Alliance as a government not unlike the Empire from Star Wars, utterly corrupt and willing to go to any lengths to do what they see fit, including using an entire planet as a testbed for biological agents, sanctioning experiments on unwilling teenagers, and sending literal psychopaths after their test subjects. The friction between the crew is rapidly erased since now it's clear the Alliance is definitely evil and definitely hunting the crew down. Gone, too, is the subtle, disquieting unpredictability of River's questionable abilities, replaced in the blink of an eye with an all-out, super-sane, weapons-toting combat master. The alterations to the general feel of the show brought about by its transition to the big screen aren't the main problem with the idea of continuing the story, though. TV series can run on for too long. The initial intrigue eventually fades, and the show drags, often having to ramp up the stakes to stay interesting. While it's possible to find good things in each series, most viewers will agree that there's a point in every show's lifetime where it's at its best. And that is very rarely the last season or the final episode. 
Having seen the shape of what Firefly might have been through the film Serenity, we can look back at the series and ask, should this have ended here? Firefly's final episode, Objects in Space, is arguably the best of the whole season. Sure, there are more fun episodes, there are more action-packed episodes, there are more heartfelt episodes, but Objects in Space is a deep cut of characterization, motivation, development, and fantastic directing, all rolled into a single episode that is a near-perfect example of the series as a whole. The opening follows River as she walks the ship, eavesdropping on the rest of the crew in a series of wonderful little vignettes as they interact. They seem oblivious to her presence, and in each interaction the characters seem to utter some deep truth, almost like River is witnessing a confession. The opening scene ends with River finding a twig in the cargo bay. She picks it up and suddenly it's a gun, and the crew are all around her freaking out. She's been sleepwalking, and we've been riding along in River's head. We got to see the world for a brief moment as she does, and it's confusing and hard to tell what's real. Was she actually listening in on the crew psychically, or was that all in her mind? This sparks a discussion between the crew about what to do with River. How dangerous is she? Could they ever trust her? This brilliant scene is shot entirely with the crew sitting around a dining table. It's a microcosm of the family atmosphere friction present through the whole series. The way each character sits, how close together, with whom, and where they're facing reflects where each character is at this point in the story. The ship is later boarded by a bounty hunter, Jubal Early, who is menacing, psychotic, and verbose. He captures the crew and forces Simon to help him go through the ship to try to find River's hiding place. River, in hiding, is a disembodied voice coordinating the isolated and trapped members of the crew, helping them to form a response to Early's invasion. All the while, she keeps Early talking, seemingly reading his mind, referencing things from his past, and playing him at his own game of psychological manipulation. At the end, the final scene of the episode and the entire series, there's a final walkthrough of the ship, a mirror of that of the opening scene. But now, River is part of it. She's not a passive, dreamlike observer. She's now one of the crew. This is peak Serenity crew. Few members, lots of questions, and no particular plan to better themselves. It's possible to read so much into just this one episode, the way each character has developed since its first episode. The relationships they've forged and the way they've fallen into a new version of the extended family we met in the first episode. In canceling Firefly after only one short season, Fox left us with a moving, poignant, final episode to end a memorable series. Nothing is really resolved at all, but maybe that's what turned Firefly into something that fans still talk about today, 18 years after it originally aired. It won numerous awards and still makes lists of top sci-fi series. Most importantly, Firefly has influenced countless other series, games, fashions, and fictional works in both spirit and style, including Battlestar Galactica, Stargate, the 2019 game Outer Worlds, and many more. It's possible that, had it run for the intended seven seasons, it wouldn't have reached the near-legendary status that it did. It's possible that it would have peaked and declined as popularity waned, and we'd be left feeling disappointed at unrealized potential.
Firefly's cancellation was a good thing because it left us wanting more and it made us ask questions. We searched for answers and solace within the 14 episodes we got. It's proof, too, that the enduring impact and popularity of a work like Firefly can't always be judged on Nielsen writings. Canon. Exploring consistency in storytelling. Fantasy and science fiction is expected, almost required, to possess an internal continuity, especially across some of the most extensive and multimedia stories. The idea of canon, elements of a franchise, which are officially considered true by the creators or publishers, is often hotly debated by fans. When a single writer or team has created the majority of a work, canon is fairly easy to define. A line can easily be drawn between what is true to their world and what is not. However, in especially long-running series, it can be argued that structured world-building stifles creativity. In many cases, newer canon ends up treading on the toes of older pieces and necessitating retcons or retroactive continuity to explain the discrepancies. Sometimes this is a small thing, like the inconsistent age of the Doctor in Doctor Who. But at others, far more sweeping changes are made, notably in the newest crop of Star Wars films. That said, the alternative approach of backfilling comes with its own problems. While certainly allowing more freedom than traditional world-building to begin with, it can often cause conundrums later on once a significant body of material has been built up. This is especially evident in video games like Resident Evil, Metal Gear and Tomb Raider. In each of these, the original instalments were self-contained, but they spawned numerous sequels which began to delve into the backgrounds of their worlds and characters. While inconsistencies and reboots exist within these series, their stories are still beloved by fans, and many can be enjoyed without needing the context of other games in the series. J.R.R. Tolkien can easily be considered the quintessential world-builder, due to how famously detailed and rich Middle-earth's cultures were. Whether it be the proud elven king of Mirkwood in The Hobbit, released in 1937, or the noble land of Gondor in The Lord of the Rings, released between 1954 and 1955, every place and character in Tolkien's works has a deep history or lineage, which can often be traced back hundreds or even thousands of years. Extensive family trees exist for the hobbits of the Shire, and timelines and maps of Middle-earth and the undying lands provide visual depictions of a fictional history as credible as those of reality. 1977's The Silmarillion allows readers a unique window into various stories and legends referenced throughout and influencing the events of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. All of these details serve to make Tolkien's works some of the most well-known and respected in the fantasy genre, and in literature generally. This level of depth came from a very focused starting point. An avid philologist... Tolkien began developing the peoples and stories of Middle-earth from the languages he created for them. In his own words, the stories were made rather to provide a world for the languages than the reverse. With complete histories and evolutions of Quenya, Sindarin, Western and many other languages, Middle-earth and the stories therein took shape. 
Language and culture are inextricably linked, so by creating languages, Tolkien was also creating cultures. From here, discovering how people from those cultures might interact would come naturally, and thus stories were born. By starting with a core detail, Tolkien was able to build up his creations and work outwards, with the broader strokes of the world only coming later. The rock-solid construction of Middle-earth allowed Tolkien ample freedom to tell his stories, because Middle-earth was the story. In contrast, the Cthulhu mythos did not have such structured origins. While the main body of short stories from the mythos were written by H.P. Lovecraft, the idea of the stories being part of a linked and cohesive universe was more the product of Lovecraft's friend and protégé, August Derleth. The name Cthulhu Mythos was also a product of Derleth's development. The only name Lovecraft had given his fictional universe was the joking term yog sothothery While a vague pantheon of Outer Ones and Great Old Ones was repeatedly referenced in Lovecraft's works, notably in The Call of Cthulhu, any kind of underlying structure or intention behind them was absent. It was only after Lovecraft's death following an unsuccessful career that Derleth founded the publisher Arkham House to make Lovecraft's work more well-known. The first publication from Arkham House was The Outsider and Others in 1939, an anthology of almost all of Lovecraft's short stories. Following this, Derleth began writing his own stories based on Lovecraft's notes, which introduced the ideas of elder gods. Derleth's contributions helped to flesh out the Cthulhu mythos, notably by adding a few more entities to the pantheon, including Hastur, a being in Robert W. Chambers' The King in Yellow, which had inspired some of Lovecraft's work. By taking the captivating ideas of Lovecraft's cosmic horrors and tying them to similar stories and producing a cohesive world for them, Derleth created a framework which many writers since have used to continue the mythos. Fantasy Flight Games has a range of board and card games set in the world of the Cthulhu mythos. While themes and characters from the mythos appear across an array of video games too wide to list here, even as early as January 2020, The Colour Out of Space was adapted into a film of the same name. Yet all of this came from a relatively disorganised collection of short stories about cosmic fish monsters. Outside of prose literature, other long-running media have gathered inconsistencies and the necessity for retcons over their lifetimes. Comic books are notorious for their convoluted continuity, due in no small part to the incredibly long time some characters have been around. Action Comics No. 1 was published in 1938, with Batman No. 1 only two years later. The continuity of characters such as Superman or the Avengers is complicated further by the fact that many of them lacked any kind of origin story when they were first written. With such stories only being added later, and often retold or altered, both within the plot, time manipulation or alternate dimensions being commonplace in such stories, and outside of it, where writers choose to ignore or retcon previously established stories. With the rise of film adaptations of classic comic book characters, many stories have been changed further, or restarted altogether, for the transition to a different medium. An excellent example of this labyrinthine retconning is in the story of Batman's arch-nemesis, the Joker. 
First appearing in Batman number one, the Joker was not given any kind of backstory until Detective Comics number 168, released in 1951, over a decade later. In 1988, this origin story was retold by Alan Moore in The Killing Joke, with some significant changes, though the broad strokes remained the same. In his numerous film appearances, the Joker's background has either been left absent, as in The Dark Knight, released in 2008, or been changed again. In Joker, released in 2019, his origin story is again retold, with The Killing Joke cited as inspiration, although not directly adapted. But in the case of the Joker, this absence of a solid background has become part of the character. It cements his place as the enigmatic and eternal foe of Batman, with no need for a why as to his existence. Most comic book characters are treated in a similar way. There are generally agreed-upon events leading to the creation, such as Bruce Banner being exposed to gamma radiation and becoming the Hulk. But specific hows and whys are unnecessary. This leaves various possibilities open for writers to explore with these characters, which has no doubt contributed to their longevity, but also helps these stories to take their place as a form of modern mythology. However, cross-media retconning and vagueness doesn't always work to the advantage of the material, as the history of Star Wars fiction shows. Prior to the release of The Phantom Menace in 1999, material in books, comics and games was expressly forbidden by Lucasfilms from developing or exploring the decades leading up to A New Hope in 1977. This led to a significant number of novels set after Return of the Jedi, continuing the stories of Luke Skywalker and the War with the Empire. Later books, starting with The New Jedi Order, Vector Prime, in 1999, introduced a new set of villains in the extragalactic Yuuzhan Vong, whose civilization and history was greatly developed. After the release of The Phantom Menace, the time of the Old Republic and before was free for writers to delve into. Perhaps the most famous story from this time was that of Darth Revan, told in Bioware's Knights of the Old Republic in 2003 and its sequel games. As the player character, with a story shifting between the light and dark sides of the Force, Revan quickly became a fan favourite, and series continued, exploring the Old Republic to general praise. But problems arose following Disney's announcement that all Star Wars media published before 25th of April 2014, other than the at-the-time six live-action films and the Clone Wars animated series and film, would be rebranded as Legends and considered non-canon. This was done in preparation for the upcoming sequel trilogy of films, starting with The Force Awakens in 2015, since they radically altered the stories of Luke, Han and Leia, as well as the galaxy at large from those told in previously published novels. This naturally displeased fans of the older material, but the retconning of Darth Revan's story and the Knights of the Old Republic was met with especially vigorous criticism, especially since the MMO continuation of it, Star Wars The Old Republic, was and is still active. With mixed responses to the newer films, many fans of Star Wars as a whole were greatly disappointed by the stories that replaced the ones they'd known, loved and in some cases written. Nevertheless, 
canonicity is not always so complex or controversial. Ever since the broadcast of its first episode in 1966, Star Trek television series and films have been in production on and off, with the most prolific periods spanning the late 1980s to the early 2000s. Over this time, several casts have portrayed crews and events from various time periods and settings in the galaxy of Star Trek, from Shatner and Nimoy's Kirk and Spock in the original series, to Mulgrew and Ryan's Janeway and Seven of Nine in Voyager. While the series as first envisioned by Gene Roddenberry had a few fixed elements, such as the hostility between the Klingon Empire and the Federation, and the Federation's general attempts to explore and negotiate peacefully, a lot was left open and unexplored. Over time, as different writers and different series were introduced, more of these elements were expanded upon, while new dynamics were also added, such as the introduction of the Cardassians as a major galactic player. Inconsistencies arose due to the gradually expanding canon of Star Trek, most notably when series like Enterprise and Discovery began to explore the past of the galaxy's timeline. Not all of these inconsistencies are necessarily the fault of the writers. In many cases, the appearances of aliens such as the Klingons and Robulans changed with improving special effects technology, with in-universe reasons being cited as simply natural variations or being a product of genetic tampering. Minor specifics such as dates of events or names of small devices can be a little hazier, since some sources conflict, at times even within the same series. In general, however, Star Trek embraces the vast size and possibilities of the galaxy, allowing the series to continue exploring new elements without needing to worry too much about treading the same ground. So, is any one of these methods better than another? It all depends on a creator's preferred approach. Solid world-building like Tolkien's or Star Wars provides plenty of depth from the outset, but takes more time and effort to get started and can be susceptible to limiting factors when trying to explore new story avenues. A looser, more improvised approach, such as Lovecraft's or Star Trek's, speeds up the process, but can far more easily create inconsistencies and retcons. Of course, the negative aspects of both can be turned to advantages, such as the way vagueness is used to great effect in the background of the Joker, while a more restricted world like Middle-earth is used to show repeating cycles of hubris, evil and heroism. Ultimately, neither method seems to be better than the other. Rather, like any tool or technique, it's about how they're used. Board Game Review One Deck Dungeon and Forest of Shadows One Deck Dungeon is among the first games I discovered when delving into the wondrous world of solo board games. If you're not familiar with the concept, it can seem a bit odd, but it's now common and has been one of the biggest areas of growth in the board game scene in the last few years. One Deck Dungeon is a light dungeon crawl, most similar to a video game roguelike. Each game has you delving through three floors of a dungeon, starting with basic equipment and stats, and trying to survive long enough to defeat a boss. Progress through the dungeon is represented by a deck of door cards. Flipping a door reveals a challenge, either a monster or a trap. It is on these cards where the meat of the game lies, set amidst a series of coloured boxes with a number printed in them. Your Dungeoneer has three stats, Strength, Yellow, 
agility, pink, and magic, blue. For each point in these stats, you have a correspondingly coloured six-sided dice. At this point, the game is simple. Roll the dice your character has, and then attempt to place them in the coloured boxes, treating the values inside as a minimum requirement. Different monsters and traps are easier for different heroes, depending on whether they are best challenged using force, magic, or speed. However, what makes this game great are the skills and powers which the heroes acquire during their adventure. You will beat every card you face. Placing the die actually reduces the amount of damage you take in doing so, but it's game over as soon as you lose all your hit points. Each card is then taken as a trophy in one of three ways. It can be taken as an increase to one of your stats, providing an additional die for future encounters. It can be taken as XP, occasionally allowing you to level up, in order to have more skills and abilities, or it can be taken as a character ability or potion type. These last rewards are what make the game so interesting and replayable. An example of a card might be Haste. Spend three magic, blue, to roll two additional speed, pink, dice. Or Potion of Clarity. Spend a potion to re-roll all dice showing one and two. In this way, we can tackle even monsters to which our hero is not suited, by using additional powers to manipulate dice. By building up additional dice and additional powers, One Deck Dungeon truly gives the experience of buffing a character during a roguelike crawl. Should you survive as far as the boss, typically you will be rolling a great handful of dice and have a huge choice of skills to combo. Because of its reliance on dice, detractors of this game will point to its randomness, but I think that's missing the point. The idea of the additional skills is actually to reduce the influence of randomness in the game. Certainly early on you are at the whim of the dice, but by the end of the game you have either made your own luck or you haven't. This is what I love. Each round of combat becomes its own puzzle, in which I try to use the dice I've rolled to activate my equipment most efficiently. In one of the best games I've played of One Deck Dungeon, I faced the boss and rolled almost an entire handful of ones and twos, but it didn't matter, as the skills I'd acquired allowed me to manipulate and alter these dice in such a way that I was still able to apply almost maximum damage and take no wounds in return. I'd selected skill combos that rendered the value of the initial roll almost irrelevant. And there's a huge amount of variety. There are 44 basic encounters, 5 heroes with different starting powers and 5 different bosses. Each of these bosses scales in difficulty and also provides different rule challenges for the dungeon approaching them. There's a campaign mode, which allows you to progressively level up a hero, taking on all five dungeons in sequence, and the box contains a generous pad of sheets to track progress. In this, each run begins with basic equipment and skills as always, but there are additional campaign skills you can begin with, depending on how many points you've acquired beating your last run. If that weren't enough, there is also the second box, One Deck Dungeon Forest of Shadows. This is a standalone expansion, meaning it can be played as a game on its own, or combined with One Deck Dungeon for even more variety. The main experience of Forest of Shadows is essentially the same, but it's a more refined experience, with the addition of a poison status, and several different quirks on the encounter cards themselves. And of course it comes with five new heroes, dungeons, bosses, a new campaign, and a whole other deck of monsters. So if you're looking for a solo game a bit more complex than Patience, but less of a mammoth undertaking than Gloomhaven, 
One Deck Dungeon and Forest of Shadows are brilliant, pocket-sized adventures. At its most basic, it's a dice chucker, Yahtzee with nicer pictures. But if the gameplay style takes hold of you, there's nothing quite like battling through a deck of monsters and emerging from it a unique hero. Pathfinder. All the tools. In the world of tabletop role-playing games, Dungeons and Dragons is king. However, there are plenty of alternatives out there. Just what is Pathfinder, you might wonder? You've heard your tabletop role-playing game obsessed friend talk about it, and you're pretty sure they're not referring to the long-running Nissan utility vehicle. Just what is Galarian? You don't want to mix it up with the Galarian region of the newest Pokemon games. The Pathfinder tabletop role-playing game and its setting of Galarian, despite struggling for name recognition, are strong alternatives to the cultural powerhouse of Dungeons & Dragons, or D&D, and its classic fantasy world of Faerun. Pathfinder was, in fact, born out of D&D. The producing company, Piazzo, used to work with Wizards of the Coast during the well-loved 3.5 edition of that game, producing its magazine. When Wizards of the Coast moved on to 4th edition, the folks at Piazzo were concerned with some of the restrictive licensing rules around the new version and made their own game, intended to be backwards compatible with 3.5. Pathfinder spruced up some of the more lacklustre elements of 3.5, while still allowing players of that edition to migrate old characters to the new system. As D&D's 4th edition fell short of expectations, Pathfinder rose to fill the niche of being the premier tabletop role-playing game. For a while, anyone who was playing a fantasy tabletop role-playing game was playing Pathfinder. In fact, prior to live-streaming their now insanely popular D&D game, the cast of Critical Role used the Pathfinder system in their home game. Thanks to Piazzo's extensive playtesting and faithfulness to classic systems, as well as a dose of creativity centred around the new world of Galarian, Pathfinder was at the top of the role-playing game tree. All of that changed with D&D's 5th edition, known for a time as D&D Next. Wizards of the Coast engaged in their own extensive playtest, refining and pulling from old systems to create the most streamlined and user-friendly game system around. Suddenly, Pathfinder was obsolete. It was far more complicated than 5th edition, and less user-friendly to new players. Thanks to 5th edition's brilliant new advantage-disadvantage mechanic, and philosophies of exceptions-based rules and bounded accuracy, Rolling dice and minimising large numbers or rules was easier than ever. As live-streamed and recorded tabletop games emerged into the mainstream, shows like Critical Role and The Adventure Zone infatuated a whole new generation with D&D, and Pathfinder was largely relegated to hobby stores. In recent years, Piazzo has made an effort to market themselves as an alternative to D&D's simplified classic gameplay. The centrepiece of this strategy is their second edition of Pathfinder, which was released last year. Pathfinder 2 was a calculated attempt for Piazzo to carve out a new niche for themselves as the game for players more interested in an in-depth, dedicated fantasy gaming experience. In their marketing, they emphasised how different they were from 5th edition. Pathfinder 2 had a fully fleshed out and functional Beastmaster Ranger, for example. A sore spot for 5th edition and Pathfinder 2 launched with our Tissifer character class ready to play, with far more classes yet to come. Unfortunately for Piazzo, their gamble seems not to have paid off. 5th edition players' handbooks continue to fly off the shelves at a record pace, 
while Pathfinder 2 books lag far behind in sales. D&D has firmly entrenched itself at the centre of the role-playing game community, with little room for competition. In addition to popularity boosts from livestreaming, 5th edition has been bolstered by a partnered website called D&D Beyond, which digitises and streamlines character creation. Pathfinder 2, as yet, provides no such service. Still, as an alternative to 5th edition, Pathfinder is worth your consideration. While Pathfinder 2 has streamlined the game somewhat from the original Pathfinder, it remains more involved and nuanced than 5th edition. In 5th edition, deciding a character's features might be as simple as picking a class and subclass, then adding a predetermined feature to your character sheet each time you level up. In Pathfinder 2, each time your character levels up, you choose from a broad selection of talents and feats, specialising your character in different ways. Even critical hits and failures are different between the two versions. In D&D, you automatically succeed or fail on an attack roll if you roll a 1 or a 20 on a 20-sided die, and double the dice rolled for damage if you critically hit. In Pathfinder, you have critical successes and critical failures for attack rolls, skill checks, and saving throws when you beat or fall short of a target number by 10 or more, and each critical success or failure works differently based on which attack, spell, or other effect is in play. Natural 20s and natural 1s still play a role, bumping a success or failure up or down a stage of the critical failure-failure-success-critical-success progression. An easy illustration of the differences between the two can be found in the character creation process. Suppose someone wants to create an example of the most popular archetype in fantasy gaming, the human fighter. In 5th edition, they begin by rolling for ability scores, which are the standard Strength, Dexterity, Constitution, Intelligence, Wisdom and Charisma ratings. Instead of rolling dice, the player could take the standard array of scores, or engage in the more complex system of point-by. That done, they choose the human race. If they choose the variant version of human, they assign two ability score increases, pick an extra skill, and choose a special bonus ability called a feat, which is an optional rule in 5th edition that allows for special customization of characters. However, our player can far more easily take the standard human and just add one point to all ability scores, plus another language. In the 5th edition rulebook, all of the mechanics they need to build up a human take up a quarter of a page. The remaining three pages are flavour. Following their race selection, they take the class Fighter and choose between one of six simple combat styles, which offer small boosts to particular modifiers. They choose two skills from a list, pick starting equipment from another list, and then move on to select a mechanically simple background that offers pre-selected skills and equipment. Once they've recorded their choices, their character is done and ready for play. All in all, the process takes less than an hour, far less with practice. When this character levels up, they roll for additional hit points and add a new ability called Action Surge to their character sheet. That's it. A maximum possible total of about a dozen small choices. On the other hand, suppose we're creating a human fighter in Pathfinder. First of all, we can't roll for ability scores. We need to use the system's equivalent of point by, starting each score at 10 and applying a series of bonuses and possible penalties based on our race, sorry, I mean ancestry class and background, plus a series of additional free bonuses. For our human fighter, that will be a series of nine small boosts, some of which we pick from a limited range and others we choose freely. If we want a little extra flexibility, we can take two floors for another boost. 
We then choose a heritage for our human ancestry, such as half-orc or versatile, which adds some more scribbles to our character sheet. Then we choose an ancestry feat, picking from a list of seven or more, depending on your heritage. We also add traits to our sheets, namely human and humanoid. We'll be collecting traits like candy as we go on. Finally, once our intelligence score is worked out, we'll need to come back to our ancestry and pick any additional languages. Once we've ironed out our ancestry, we pick a background from among 35 different options. 5th edition has 16 in the base rules, and make another couple of choices within the background. We add another feat to the list, so that 5 times fast, you'll need to say it often in Pathfinder. Finally, we become a fighter. We get some proficiencies by default, and we will need to pick 4 additional skills, plus possibly more. We'll need to remember to recalculate our proficiency bonuses each level, which will vary based on our character level and level of proficiency. Untrained, trained, expert, and so on. We add the Attack of Opportunity and Shield Block abilities to our sheet, then choose yet another feat from another list of seven. Finally, finally, our character is ready. When we level up, we will choose a feat again from that list of seven, with an additional seven options. Then we will choose yet another feat from a much larger list of skill feats in Chapter 5. But at least we don't need to roll for hit points, we get a default number. It's a much larger number of choices than we get when we make a 5th edition character, and from much more varied and intricate options. Keep in mind that Fighter is pretty much the simplest class. Try playing a Spellcaster. Need I go into the difference between prepared and spontaneous spellcasting? How about focus spells, heightened spells, and the four spellcasting traditions? You get the point. Not only does Pathfinder abide with tricky decisions, the book is swimming in rules and technical terms with specific meanings. With 5th edition, you pretty much get a new player up and running in an hour or two, for a fun, free-flowing game. The 5th edition player's handbook does include extensive rules, but it also contains a large proportion of flavour text and advice. In Pathfinder, the book is almost entirely made up of rules, with Chapter 8 largely set aside for worldbuilding. Forget running combat in the theatre of the mind, you'll almost certainly want a battle grid. For these reasons, 5th edition is a better game for new players. Games masters can easily walk them through the rules until they become comfortable with the system, and the cookie-cutter fantasy world of Faerun is full of familiar tropes that anyone who has watched Peter Jackson's Middle-earth movies will recognise. While there are some leftover archaic notions from traditional fantasy, still calling them races, come on Wizards of the Coast, Many of them have been cleaned up and modernised by the culturally conscious folks at Wizards of the Coast, who have taken care to emphasise diversity and representation in their work. It's a satisfactory experience. What, then, is the place for Pathfinder? Well, you might say that Pathfinder is D&D's endgame. 5th edition is a wonderful system that leaves plenty of room for creativity and diverse characters, but Pathfinder expands on that. The vastly increased number of choices made during character creation and advancement means that you can customise your character to a far greater extent. The expansive system of rules allows for more advanced and nuanced tactical gameplay. The three-action system gives players a bit more flexibility and capacity for strategy on their turns in combat. Finally, Pathfinder's world of Galarian breaks or expands on a number of classic fantasy tropes to create a truly unique setting. Elves' appearances change based on their long-term environment. Gnomes lead towards a fey ancestry and are immortal until they get bored and fall prey to the colour-sapping bleaching. 
and goblins are excitable pyromaniacs that can fit in among civilised societies despite their unsavoury tendencies. Once you've seen all that 5th edition has to offer, Pathfinder can be new and engaging. It's the true nerd's tabletop game. Unfortunately for Piazzo, most people will never reach that point. In our busy lives, most of us struggle to maintain a regular tabletop gaming session. We can barely afford enough time to maintain our character sheets, let alone spend hours making difficult choices between small numeric increases. Most people probably just don't have the time or level of interest. For those of you who do, though, check out Pathfinder. It's about as in-depth an experience as you can find in fantasy tabletop gaming. Book Review Trigonometry A mysterious author writing under the pseudonym Stark Holborn first made themselves known for a smart take on the post-Western novel with Nunslinger, a more serious and deep story than the title would lead you to believe. It was first serialised in 12 parts, before being picked up and published as a novel by Hodder and Stoughton. Trigonometry is the author's second story, a novella that keeps the Western setting, but this time imagines a world where mathematicians have become outlawed, and those practising any form of mathematics declared illegal. Perpetrators of such heinous crimes are hunted down with little mercy and even less justice. Professor Mad Malago Brown is one such outlaw who has turned her back on a life as a gunslinger and ekes out an existence one step ahead of bounty hunters by providing illicit bookkeeping to those willing to take the risk of hiring her. Then her old partner tracks her down, looking to team up for that one last big heist. So far, so familiar as westerns go, except for the maths. However, it's not long before you realise that trigonometry offers something more. The author has a real flair for storytelling, populates the world with interesting characters and colours everything with lively, descriptive prose. The plot has enough twists, turns and double crosses to keep things interesting, and it's all wrapped up in the dusty western setting reminiscent of western films and pulp fiction novels that populated much of the mid-20th century. Those who pay close attention will realise that a number of the characters in the book are named after real mathematicians from around the world. From French lawyer Pierre de Fermat, known as Fermat's Last Theorem, but also responsible for Fermat's Principle, to American Solomon Lefchetz, perhaps best known for the topological formula known as the Lefchetz Fixed Point Theorem. These outlaws aren't just mathematical geniuses. They have a real talent for trigonometry, to the extent that they can figure out how to shoot at the right angle to take people out in some style. If you thought that last sentence sounded a little far-fetched, you'd be right, it does. That leads us to the issue I have with this book. At times, it seems to struggle to decide exactly what it wants to be. Did the author come up with a title first and then build a story around this play on words? Is it a tongue-in-cheek exploration of the post-Western genre? Perhaps it's just trying to be a light-hearted piece of fiction that looks to emulate the pulp Western novels of the 20th century. That doesn't seem to be the case, given how much time and effort has gone into the characters and writing. It seems more likely a deconstruction of the genre. The answer isn't clear, though. At times, it feels quite serious, while at others, like when a bullet bounces off objects to hit an obscure target, far less so. The author's talents as a writer are clear, and yet it feels a disjointed juxtaposition of clever writing when combined with implausible trigonometry shooting hijinks. Despite this, trigonometry does work. It's entertaining and, at times, clever fiction, and the pace is such that, combined with the novella length, it makes a quick and easy read. Not a bad way to spend an afternoon in this time of self-isolation. 
Games Masterclass, creating your world. World building is at the heart of the Games Master process. Your player's characters need somewhere to exist. Eventually, a player is going to ask, what's over the hill? Or beyond the horizon? And you need to be able to give them an answer. Or at least an adventure that leads to an answer. There are many different published settings out there, and you might think that using one of these, or perhaps basing your game on the setting from an established franchise from other media, might get you off the hook. These can be a great starting point, but I'm afraid you'll still have some work to do. These settings can give your players a common starting point for beginning to understand how the world works, and it can certainly let you put off some of this work until you've started the game and can get a feel for the dynamic. However, The time will come when you'll be asked a question that the setting, or the TV show, film, book, or whatever, doesn't readily provide an answer for. Or you might need to change something because it doesn't quite fit what you need. Perhaps you want to just make changes to keep players that know the setting well on their toes. For whatever reason, you can't entirely rely on these published solutions. World building is an art which can be done in several ways, and all Games Masters will find their own style, or even different styles, depending on the need of the individual game. I tend to think of these styles as being points on a 3D graph, with the three axes describing three different extremes. More on this shortly. I'm going to assume that the Games Master will be primarily responsible for the world-building, but that isn't always the case. Thirteenth Age, for example, encourages the players to get involved, and Dresden Files has players creating their city collaboratively as part of the character creation. The first of these three axes is preparation versus improvisation. If you want to prepare your setting in advance, you are, of course, talking about a lot of work before the game starts, either in terms of design work or reading up on the material you intend to use. You probably need to do this before you even invite character concepts, as many players will want to tie their characters to the world in some way. The great benefit is that you should end up with a very consistent world, and you'll be ready to answer those questions that players raise with a minimum of effort. You might have to change things as you go along, but you front-loaded the work, so the session-to-session work and the actual running of the game should be much simpler. Improvisation, on the other hand, allows you to much more easily react to what the players do and the needs of the story. I'd strongly recommend making careful notes as you go along, should you pursue this option, because answers to what's beyond the forest changing each session will spoil player immersion. Another danger is poorly done improvisation. Struggling for a name and then using a joke one might be funny at the time, but these are often the characters that players latch on to, and you might regret it in a few sessions' time. Tacking to either of these extremes will probably lead you to problems, and may well be impossible. You need some idea of the world for your players to fit their characters into it, and equally, you'll never manage to answer every question beforehand. Where you want to land on the scale will be a matter of personal preference and confidence. Even if you're using the real world as your setting, you'll need to change something or add elements, and even if you want to completely improvise, I would strongly recommend at least having a list of names handy. The second axis refers to your starting point. I call one end top-down and the other inside-out. In 
top-down world building, you start with the big picture, be that the galaxy, the planet, the dimension, the country, or whatever else, and start to map it out. This doesn't necessarily need to be detailed. For example, you don't need to know the name of the king on the other side of the world, but you know what the world looks like and where things are. You can then, once you have the big picture, start to fill it in. Inside-out world building starts with a small location, a village, say, or even a first dungeon, and you only start to worry about outside of that small environment as and when it's needed. That doesn't mean that the world is entirely improvised. You can ask your players what their intentions are for the next session, giving you some time to prepare the next area. Which of these you'll want to use will probably depend mostly on the scope of the game you're planning. If you're looking at a small party of heroes who go from town to town solving problems, Inside Out is probably your best bet. You only create the world as and when it's required, and you don't need to worry about larger issues or politics, unless it actually impacts on the game. On the other hand, if you intend that your player characters will eventually get involved with issues on a country or worldwide scale, then the top-down view will probably help you more. You'll have a better idea of how each nation impacts on the others, and the politics should flow naturally from that. Note that these techniques can work whatever scale you're working with, and whatever genre you're using for your game. You just need to keep in mind travel times. Your starting village in a Dungeons & Dragons campaign might be a starting planet in Star Trek or a neighbourhood in a superhero-style game. Your fantasy region might be a solar system in a science fiction setting or a city for a game revolving around superheroes. So far, all my examples have been geographically based, asking questions about villages, countries and so on. However, the third axis turns this on its head. Geographical is one end of this axis, the other is temporal. In some games, the history of the world may be just as important as the geography, and, for example, the historic reasons for a war between two cultures might lead to a solution to that conflict in the time frame of your game. If you're dealing with prophecy, you might need to think about both the history and the future. This is equally the case if you're considering how technology levels may progress in a science fiction setting. At the geographical end of the axis, you create your world and then you work out reasons why it is the way it is. You might fully prepare your map and answer historic questions through improvisation. The other end of the axis starts with a timeline and then works out what kind of society and geography those events might have led to. Again, either or both might be prepared or improvised. The issue here is, which do you think about first? Which is the cause and which is the effect? If you're working with a history rather than a geography, you still need to make a decision about where to be on the top-down inside-out axis. In this case, top-down looks at a big-picture timeline with big events filled in. And then you can look at the detail. Perhaps your history can be split into ages or occasional cataclysms. Inside-out looks at a particular point on the timeline, typically the present, and works outwards, working out causes of events in reverse. I'll give you a couple of personal examples to illustrate. The game I'm currently running uses the 13th Age system, and I'm using the Dragon Empire, the default setting, largely unaltered, although it's not particularly detailed. It expects player participation in world-building. 
all of my players chose to create elf characters, which meant that I could start by focusing on that particular culture and part of society before widening out. History has been important, but long enough ago that it could be referred to vaguely for the most part. Only recently have I filled in a top-down timeline. Alternatively, in a previous game, all of the characters had amnesia and woke up together in a dungeon. In this case, I created my own world so that my players would know absolutely nothing about it before we started, and a great deal of that world was improvised as I went. Although I had created a rough map and had written a pantheon of gods, however, I wrote a small flashback vision for each character each session for them to discover their backstories and how their personal history related to the plot, and as a result my history of the world was very detailed from the start. The key lesson here is that almost any point on the model, with an exception for some of the greatest extremes, can work. Most games masters are going to be somewhere in the middle, depending on their own preferences, experiences and confidence. Each has its own benefits, and with care you can balance them out and take advantage of all of them. Personally, I tend towards the improvisational and inside-out. I've had far too many games where my preparation has been wasted because the players went a different way. However, one of the best games I ever played was extensively mapped out, to the point that the characters found a copy of the map in the early sessions and relied on it extensively. No matter your style, world-building comes down to asking questions and hopefully asking them of yourself before your players do. Why are these two countries at war? How come this landlocked town has a port? Why is this village called Riverside, even though there isn't a river for miles? From where does this city get its food? Who colonised this planet, and why did they do so? From these initial answers, more questions will be raised. Not all of them will be relevant to your story, but every question you answer adds a little detail to the world that might inform something else. This is the greatest strength of preparedness. You give yourself time to answer those questions, consider the implications, and fall down the rabbit hole. The same process applies if you're improvising, but you've given yourself less time to consider the natural consequences. An important aspect to keep in mind is that these are largely the same questions, no matter what setting or genre you're working in. People are still people, and all of the reasons a setting is the way it is come down to decisions that people, albeit fictional ones, have made. Even if you're trying to use a setting where the people are very alien and difficult to understand, you're still asking yourself how they're different. Your biggest tool is why, very closely followed by the other questions. Naturally, not all games will need this level of consideration. Sometimes you just need a dungeon and a vague reason to be in it. However, putting some thought into these questions can help bring some authenticity to the world you're playing in and to the game. And authenticity is what you're aiming for, not necessarily realistic. Realism is a different thing, of course, but something that makes sense internally. Remember, though, that you don't need to do this too much, at least to start. If that empty map is too intimidating, just pick up a setting book or create your starting village. You can always build from there. In time, you'll want to start putting your own stamp on a world. Acid Chapter 2 A Table Set for One The cloud cities of Venus are home to billions. 
The protectorate governs from the largest, oldest and most impressive city, Capitol, where the ruling classes have their headquarters and seats on the protectorate board. The upper echelons of Venusian society value prestige, power and influence above all else, with notoriously cutthroat business practices juxtaposed with luxurious elegance. High society balls, dinners and mixers are fantastical affairs that showcase leading fashions in clothing, food, dance and dinner conversation. They also form the backbone of the power play continually swirling around Capitol. The Venusian Protectorate is an immensely stable governmental structure that has endured for centuries. Young Denica nodded, stifling a yawn. Her teacher cooked his head to one side, evaluating. As Venus carved out its place in the myriad societies that would become the solar state, its fortunes and populations grew rapidly. The old Earth corporations that settled Venus for financial gain splintered, merged, collapsed, and solidified their power base in the clouds of Venus. Venus stopped, eyeing this young pupil. Am I boring you? A little, Danica replied. She was at the age now at which she was challenging everything. Janus had a slight, wiry build. His movements were fluid and purposeful. Danica knew he was quick, like a snake, and she was ready. Janus noted that her feet were flat on the floor and she was tense, ready for him to strike, testing him as much as he was testing her. He made a decision. As Earth suffered under the increasing stresses of overpopulation and ultimately runaway social and environmental collapse, power shifted outwards. Trade deals, brokered on Venus, developed into unregulated capitalist growth. In the early days, continual jockeying between corporations kept the Venusian exchange fluid and competitive. Eventually, the mighty Veni became the gold standard everywhere. Janus whirled, hurling the slate he was reading from across the room directly at Denica's head. The thin metal and plastic rectangle whipped through the air like a throwing knife. Denica twisted in her seat and palmed the slate away a millisecond before impact. She leapt up, crouching on her desk, hands held in the guard position he taught her years ago. The slate clattered to the floor a metre away, a spiderweb crack radiating from one corner. Neither of them looked at it. Their eyes were locked, each trying to second-guess the other's next move. Janus slent forward and calmly selected another slate from his desk drawer, thumbing through the text. Politically outmanoeuvring rivals and continually making and breaking deals to navigate to the top was, and still is, the expected way of life for most Venusian citizens. Denica relaxed a little and lowered herself back onto her seat, her eyes blazing as Janus droned on about boring ancient history. Waiting for the golden doors of the elevator in the Tower of Lights to open, Denica knew her place in this society with unshakable certainty. Knew her place in history. After tonight, her life's work would be half complete. Her success here meant retirement and training her replacement, passing on the mask and all she'd learnt, just as Janus had trained her. More than that, she knew it was right. The lift doors opened. 
Mawiri leapt from Denica's back and scurried up the wall, using the frame of the door as purchase. The squirrel waited, upside down, watching Denica exit the lift. The monitor stepped out into a gilded hallway, glanced both ways and paused for a second. Three guerrilla guards were positioned five metres to her right down the long corridor leading to the lower banquet hall. Each held a stubby assault rifle. Four human security members were to her left, deployed in a staggered cover formation behind temporary barricades along the corridor leading to the main foyer for the upper floors. They wore standard day clothes and held their standard sidearms, not assault squads, hastily assembled but still. They should not have been there. Azir Prester was perfectly aware that she was facing an assassin. Speculation amongst the extra security team that had been brought up this afternoon was that it was a monitor. Not simply a rival corporation trying something stupid. Azir patted her pocket, feeling the solid square of the engraved photo slate. She knew the lines of that image so well that she could see it even now. Just touching it was enough. Her wife and husband smiled at her. Azir squared her shoulders and resolved not to die tonight. The monitor raised her hands in surrender. Leave now and I'll let you live, it said in a synthesised voice. The mask it wore resembled some sort of canine animal. Its white face had artistic lines picked out in red, highlighting the eyes and muzzle. It wore some sort of loose overrobe or long poncho that was strangely hard to see the edges of. Active camouflage. Azir hadn't seen that since her days working for the Protectorate Military Force. Prester reacted fast. The assassin wasn't acting like someone who was about to surrender. She yelled for her team to get down. Suddenly the monitor sprinted towards the guerrilla guards, accelerating faster than seemed possible. The two security staff in front of Azir were following orders and dropped behind the barricades. A bright flash filled the world as a stun grenade went off. She squeezed her eyes shut as tightly as possible, but the white light still left purple traces dancing across her vision. Go, 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 she screamed. She popped above the barricade, pistol out, aiming blearily down the sights even before her vision had stabilised. The humanoid smudge left a purple blur across her returning sight as the monitor reached the guerrilla guards in the corridor opposite. Three silent flashes from the small pistol in its right hand, and the figure was sliding between the armoured hulking figures as the first of them staggered backwards with a grunt. The monitor spun to face the rearmost gorilla and lashed out, a line of silver flashing across the gap between them. The gorilla roared and staggered back, dark blood spraying the golden wall, arm cleanly severed at the shoulder. Three members of Azir's squad joined her as she opened fire, picking her target carefully, trying to guess where the fuzzy shape would be next. Its cloak shimmered and fluttered as though in a strong wind, its mask similarly fuzzy now too. It made it hard to tell which direction it was moving. The monitor slashed sideways with a blade and the final guerrilla guard went down, blood fountaining from a neck wound at the joint between the helmet and the chest plate. None of the guerrillas had managed to fire a shot. Aziz's security team had managed to fire maybe five or six shots each, but the monitor didn't seem to have been hit once. It was like shooting at smoke. Aziz ducked back. Fall back! Plan B! she shouted. Her squad reacted fast, flattening to the walls and laying down careful covering shots. The monitor vanished behind a sudden explosion of smoke and chaff. As he heard the dining room barricade team signal readiness on the radio, just as her squad retreated round the corner at the end of the corridor. Get back into the security room, rearm with assault weapons, armour and riot shields, and reassemble at the stairs in five minutes, she snapped. The photo square in her pocket felt unusually heavy.
Denica flicked a chaff grenade from her belt and dropped to the floor, flattening herself behind the blooded hulk of a barely breathing guerrilla guard. A couple of final bullets slammed into the animal's thick body armour. The gorilla gave one last wheezing gasp and fell silent. The chaff grenade bloomed and gave her a few seconds to assess. Her heart was racing, blood singing in her ears. Everything felt like it was on fire and the shakes were starting. She thumbed her first medical bracelet to inject a cocktail of antidote drugs into her system. Emptied, it uncurled and fell off. Three left. The effects of the hyperadrenal stimulant were wearing off. Denica assessed her situation, breath slowing as she focused on regaining control of the chaos. Her light armour bodysuit had deflected at least five near misses, judging by the grey streaks, and the tiny status display on the hem of her poncho indicated it was down to 60% power and had sustained multiple hits. The damage compromised sections of the camouflage matrix. She'd already used one of her medical bracelets. She still had two almost full pistols, a reload for each, several assorted knives and several small multifunction explosives. Fuck. They'd known she was coming. The only good news was they hadn't been sure exactly when or how, or there would have been full security team waiting at the lift doors. Interesting. Puzzling. She took a breath, smelling gorilla and blood through the mask filters. She tried not to think about the last five years and the careful infiltration, all wasted. Denica rolled away and scuttled down the corridor to the banquet hall. Wasn't exactly the route she wanted to take. She hoped Mawiri was having better luck deactivating the secondary security grid. All roads lead to the boardroom, as they say. The banquet hall was a large room with a suitably massive table in the centre and portraits of Castillos from decades past on the walls. Denica dined in halls like this several times. High society dinners lasting hours with dozens of courses, thousands of veni spent on each. In this hall, a priceless wooden table had been brutally overturned to make a long, chest-high barricade across the centre of the room. Poking out above it, several guerrilla guards and a human security staff levelled weapons at her as she burst through the main doors. The monitor slammed through the banquet hall doors at inhuman speed, rushing towards the centre of the table. All the security staff opened fire. Stray shots obliterated decor, bullets peppering the air where the masked assassin had been a millisecond before. It jumped, vaulted over the edge of the table on one gloved hand, and landed between a gorilla and a human in one flawless movement. Knives flashed in each hand, slashing at both figures simultaneously. The gorilla raised an arm and absorbed the deep slash with a grunt. The human guard wasn't quick enough, and lost a finger to the blade before it buried it to the hilt in its throat. The monitor let go of the knife, and in one fluid movement, pushed the still-standing corpse into the gorilla behind, where it tangled with its rifle, shots thudding harmlessly into the floor. New orders. Pater wants her alive. Disable only. I have no shot. The monitor turned back to the first gorilla just in time to see a massive blow from the enraged animal swinging in, blood matting the fur from the laceration along one thick arm. The monitor was almost fast enough to dodge it. Tiny compared to the gorilla guard, the cloaked figure slammed back against the upturned underside of the table, clearly winded. Flanking! The massive gorilla's fist pulled back, winding up a killing blow. Chunky fingers grabbed a handful of the monitor's flickering camouflage poncho and tore most of it away. The huge animal roared in wordless victory as it swung. 
Get back, you stupid ape. The monitor ducked. The overturned table took the hit, and the whole massive length shifted back a few centimetres. The gorilla roared and staggered back, cradling its hand. The remaining guards clustered forwards, rifles and pistols seeking sightlines, zeroing in on the cornered figure. It's over. The monitor did a standing backflip, barely clearing the edge of the table as several guards opened fire. Bullets ripped into dark wood, sending tiny shards spinning into the air. Where the assassin had been, three palm-sized silver hemispheres glinted menacingly. Grunt! The room shook, and the table split clean in two. The security staff that weren't immediately killed by the grenades were skewered by long splinters of ballistic wood. One was crushed by a falling chandelier. Two blood-covered gorillas dragged a whimpering human away from the fires that were starting to eat the wreckage. The human guard blinked at his ruined hands and passed out. To be continued. Classics of Sci-Fi Foundation This is the semi-regular feature in which we look back at the seminal works of science fiction. This month, we look at Isaac Asimov's Foundation. Psychohistory is the fictional science and central conceit of the Foundation series, and suggests that, with enough mathematics, all of human destiny can be mapped out and planned. This idea is the engine which drives Foundation and its sequels, over and above plot, character, dialogue, setting, or action. It's a troubling and deterministic idea that has nevertheless inspired generations of thinkers. Foundation itself was first published as five interrelated stories in astounding science fiction when the author, Isaac Asimov, was in his early 20s. It was first published as a single novel in 1951. In a way, it is the emblematic mid-century science fiction novel, woefully light on character depth but soaringly inspiring in its ideas and scope. Typically for the time, the far future it depicts is one of ubiquitous plastic clothes and atomic technology. It's not Asimov's most famous book. That accolade probably rests with iRobot, released in 1950, due in part to that book's lasting impact on our thinking about artificial intelligence. But the ideas Foundation contains have inspired writers, filmmakers, economists, and public figures ever since, and in 1966, the series as a whole won the Hugo Award for the best all-time series. The book, and the series, is structurally a series of vignettes, featuring pivotal people in humanity's future history as key transitional moments play out around them. Hari Seldon, the first psychohistorian, has determined a way to calculate the trajectory of the human race. He predicts that the Galactic Empire will fall in a matter of a few hundred years, a heretic prophecy, and that 30,000 years of anarchic dark ages will follow. He sets up the eponymous Foundation, a small, isolated cadre of psychohistorians with the mission to quietly steer humanity long after his death in order to foreshorten this dark age and hasten the dawn of the Second Empire. Foundation's characters are rubbish. They're all solid science men who exist to do things with no inner lives and no distinguishing features beyond their names, which are admittedly quite good. This is probably the most noticeable of the problems with Foundation, but it's arguably not the largest. For this writer, at least, the biggest problem is the central conceit, the idea that unelected boffins can and should use deception and ignorance to steer the human race towards their desired outcome. Celebrated economist Paul Krugman wrote in 2012 that he grew up wanting to be Hari Seldon, using my understandings of mathematics of human behaviour to save civilization. 
The idea that any one or group of humans should ordain themselves humanity's saviors and shepherd us to pastures they deem greener without our consent sticks in this writer's claw. Consent was apparently a difficult concept for Asimov, anecdotally one of the 20th century's handsiest writers. But it's not just the arrogance and hubris of it, it's also the implausibility. Big data as a concept doesn't exist in Foundation. Indeed, it's another modern development few science fiction writers foresaw, so Selden is working with limited data points. As meteorology shows, without ubiquitous data points, complex systems will diverge from models over time. So I have quibbles, but Foundation and its sequels are still books I enjoyed enough to reread and whose ideas have stayed with me for half my life. Why? Few books deal in the scope that Foundation does. The stakes are not the death of individuals or even the destruction of planets. The pieces on the table are entire civilizations, and they move in a time frame counted in centuries and millennia. The structure of the books is arguably necessary for this. Awkward and whistle-stop it may feel, but personal perspectives are the only way to stop narratives of this nature feeling more like textbooks than novels. The decline and fall of a civilization, especially one in our far future, is an intriguing premise, especially when informed by very real events in our past, and the cyclical sensation the novel achieves prompts interesting questions about our own destiny and permeance. Foundation is an unsatisfying read alone. I've cheated somewhat by including it as one novel, as really the series needs to be read sequentially in order to give a sense of resolution but any lover of big ideas should consider it essential reading. Rackham's Confrontation There have been a few games that really captured my imagination. Usually it's because I'm a magpie with an eye for shiny miniatures. Other times it's because the rules or concept really spoke to me. With Rackham's Confrontation, it was both the shiny models and the pocket-sized rulebooks, and the cards covered in the most magnificent art. While cards are a common component of skirmish war games these days, back in 2000, the idea of cards for model stats, magic items, spells, and even just character background was fairly novel. Rackham had its beginnings in 1996. It was founded by Jean Bay, and as the editorial and artistic director, it was primarily his vision that was translated by the many writers, designers, artists, and sculptors that joined the team. Confrontation would eventually coalesce into the world of Arclash and spawn several other games based in the same world, including the Dungeon Crawler Hybrid in 2003, the Ragnarok Battle System for fighting large-scale tabletop battles in 2005, and the Cadwallon role-playing game in 2006. In addition, a number of fan-formed and Rackham-supported Confederations of the Red Dragon sprang up around the game. This writer was an early member of UK Cord, the UK-based fan group. Every year, Rackham would produce a limited edition miniature that could only be purchased by members. In 2008, Rackham began a restructuring that saw it floated on the stock exchange and began the transformation of the company into Rackham Entertainment. Jean Bay was sidelined in the management reshuffle, retaining the title creative director, but no longer the principal creative force behind the company. So what made Confrontation's world special? It was a fantasy skirmish game at a time when Games Workshop ruled the tabletop with its Warhammer rules. If you played fantasy, you played Warhammer. You did so with Citadel miniatures, and it was all very Tolkien-inspired. Dwarves were short and beardy, elves were tall and pointy, human armies were armoured knights, and then there was chaos, and that covered everything in spiky bits. 
So imagine the revelation when I saw miniatures that didn't come out of that mould. The first models I saw from Rackham were the imposing Wolfen. These guys were massive, twice the height of a regular human model on a large base. These feral wolfmen came armed with blades strapped to their arms. Most were positioned in snarling poses, or in the case of their shamanic spellcasters, brandishing menhir-like totems. All were cast in metal. Of course, the magpie in me couldn't resist. Buying a blister pack here and another there became something of a habit. I bought gorgeous models across all factions long before I actually convinced other people to give the game itself a go. Once the door to confrontation was open, I persevered with the poorly translated rules for the sake of the wonderful models. I had been used to the game's workshop approach, which involved paying a small fortune for a rulebook and an army book before you could even start collecting. So imagine my delight when I discovered that the rulebook was a tiny 30-odd pages that fitted neatly into the blister pack, along with all the cards the model needed for play. In time, the little book edition of Confrontation, which was its second edition, the first edition having been the French-language version, gave way to Confrontation 3, which was a hardback book with a single companion book called Dogs of War. This was not only an attempt to consolidate all the rules, spells and magic items in one place, it was also a concerted effort to improve on the English translation. Unfortunately, the language was still a little stilted and unnatural, though it was an improvement. The current, fan-maintained version of the game is referred to as Confrontation 3.5. Confrontation grew from a few basic army factions into a massive, sprawling world with no fewer than 17 different races fighting over the future of Arklash. Many of these racial armies were further subdivided into seven or more themed armies. Those few who had not yet been fully developed might well have done so had not Rackham come to a crashing end. More on that shortly. The story of Arklash and the Ragnarok is quite a complex one. The end times are upon the world and the forces of light and dark are rising to clash. Each of the armies was themed around a totem. On the side of light stood the Griffin, human religious crusaders, the Lion, human high fantasy knights, and the Minotaur, the noble savages of the Celts. Against them on the side of Dark were arrayed the Ram, the undead of the Lost Duchy, the Scorpion, alchemical hybrids, and the Hydra, the possessed patchwork dwarves of Mid-Nor. Interestingly, there was a third group called Destiny. These forces fought for their own interests, or simply for survival itself. Among them were the two wolfen factions, the Wolf, noble hunters, and the Hyena, the devourers. The Rat included the thirteen goblin tribes, the tree spirit of the orcs, escaped sorcerous creations, seeking their place in a hostile world. And finally, the boar were weird techno-powered dwarves. Of course, that doesn't account for all 17 factions, but it gives a flavour. Others were added as time went on, but two of the three elf factions were never realised. Of these factions, many were broken down into further themed armies. The goblin tribes, for example, included pirate goblins with boat hooks, anchors and tricorn hats, and the fantastic oriental-inspired samurai goblins. Another highlight in the range were the undead models. So often in fantasy wargames, the undead are just rank-and-file human skeletons and zombies, and the forces of Ram certainly had those. But they also had undead from other armies, zombie wolfen, undead centaurs and the like, which made them feel like part of the world but it was the more outlandish factions that interested me. The Mid-Nor, for example, were dwarves that had ventured too deep, been captured, tortured, ripped apart, stitched back together again, and possessed by demons. 
Each of these strange, misshapen models carried tiny canopic dolls that were believed to house the demonic essence that possessed and animated their sown flesh. The Wolfen came as both noble hunters and followers of Yella, the moon, and as the vile and degraded devourers. There were the Ophidian snake people and their slaves, but most of all I wanted the evil spider elves, which, unfortunately, never existed beyond a few pieces of concept art. The army that I played the most, and suited my playstyle the best, was the Scorpions of Durs. They were alchemical monstrosities, raised from secretive laboratory cloning vats. Each of the themed laboratories had its own set of heroes, strategies, and monsters beyond the shared basic clones. Confrontation introduced me to non-Games Workshop paints and painting techniques. I switched from Games Workshop product lines to the Valeo paints and Windsor Newton brushes. I painted models because I wanted to make them look good on the tabletop, not just slap on a coat and call it done. I adopted, at least tried to adopt, the Rackham Studio style, which was the first time I'd seen models painted in a non-metallic metal technique. What made the gameplay so memorable? In Warhammer, there was a lot of waiting around as first your opponent moved their army, then you took your turn and moved yours. Confrontation wasn't like that. It used a random activation mechanic. The stat cards for your force were shuffled together with your opponent's cards and used to randomise which units would activate at a given time. The whole approach was called Fog of War, representing the confusion of battle. You could game this to your advantage by using multiple units of the same type, which contributed multiple copies of the same card to the deck, so at least you could choose which of your possible units it represented to activate. Which is why the Scorpions faction worked so well for me, with a lot of cheap clones to throw at the enemy. Sure, the clones were rubbish, but they were an effective target, allowing my hero to manoeuvre and strike at targets I wanted to take out. Actual combat was interesting too. Once melee pairing was sorted out, most warrior models had two dice to roll for attacks, and heroes often had more, but you could assign them to attack or defence. Need to hold the line against an enemy charge? Put both dice in defence. Need to break through the line? Stack them both in attack. Or, if you needed a more balanced approach, assign one each way. This meant that there was a lot of critical decision-making all the way through the game. On top of that, poor translation often meant that there was a lot of discussion and house ruling to make it through a game. In 2006, Rackham began serious expansion. They branched out into a new sci-fi game called AT43. This new game departed from the principles that had made Rackham great and shifted to pre-painted plastic models, which were frankly very good, even by modern pre-painted standards. Though I've yet to play the game myself, I do own a copy. AT43 was clearly aimed at a different customer base from Confrontation. It makes good commercial sense to diversify and bring new people into the hobby, but it prompted Rackham to try and build the next edition of Confrontation on the AT43 model, which alienated some fans. Confrontation 4, or Confrontation Age of Ragnarok, tried to do what had worked for Games Workshop, produce a core rulebook with supplemental army books for each faction. The basic game mechanics were upgraded to run on similar principles to AT43. The small warband concept of a hero supported by a handful of warriors was swept aside in favour of larger units and larger battles. The major selling point for confrontation thus far had been the all-metal artisan miniatures. These were to be phased out and replaced by pre-painted plastic. Again, even by today's standards, these were very good pre-painted plastics. But that wasn't what the artisan community around Confrontation wanted. On top of all that, Rackham changed the basing structure from square bases to round, which meant a lot of work for players, 
rebasing their existing miniatures that they had spent a great many hours lovingly painting. What followed was two years of decline, then financial difficulties, and ultimately the collapse of the company. The property still exists, with the rights to the game currently in the hands of the French company Saint Détour. But with little action in the last few years, most diehard fans keep their passion alive through eBay purchases and local play. It's a great pity that, despite a Kickstarter campaign to revive the miniature lines, nothing seems to have been delivered. Despite recent history, Confrontation was a trailblazing game with a massive line of very stylish miniatures and rules lovingly crafted, if often poorly translated. Rackham did a number of things that have shaped many games that have come after it. The use of miniature stat cards for one, which has since been adopted by Privateer's Press, War Machine and Hordes games. And now, latterly, by Games Workshop, with their Age of Sigmar and Warcry lines. Though Confrontation went further, with cards shuffled together with an opponent to form the initiative deck for activation. Confrontation still holds a special place in my heart. I have sold off many armies for games I no longer play, but I've kept every single Rackham model I ever owned. I cannot bring myself to give up even a single one. I just wish that some company, somewhere, would take over the licenses and make a go of it. Original Fiction Miserary May I met Emily on my first day in the office. She had a smile like a blackout. Like a switch got flipped in all above London, the stars shone clear for the first time since the Blitz. She shook my hand like a man, teeth and eye contact, and my tongue stuck skin dry to the roof of my mouth. I felt a familiar lurch and... To my mortification, a deep, creaking growl rumbled out from my stomach. A cringed, cheeks burning, but Emily just laughed. The sound of it, strawberry pink. She showed me to the canteen, an uncomfortable liminal place that reminded me of motorway services and airports, bright lights and unreality. The people working there had non-stick expressions protection against the constant swarm of strangers. I liked to sit sometimes where I could see the masks fall, catching glimpses of friendship through the swing doors to the kitchen, bursts of bright affection between one heart and another. Most days, though, I spent lunchtime with Emily and a blur of charming, gregarious young women, each of them witty and vibrant and kind but despite a carefully curated range of fashions and interests, I found myself struggling to tell the difference between them. Their names fell flat on my tongue without any flavour to distinguish them. Katie, Sophie, Rosie, Lizzie, Lottie. All of them seemed identical under the hair, the clothes, the skin. Their uniformity was beautiful like facets of a window interlocking. Beside them I felt discordant and misshaped. They all rushed to reassure me that, no, of course I was pretty too. No, really, really, I was. If you've ever heard the voice that girls who know they're pretty use to reassure girls they know are not, I... I cannot possibly describe it to you. 
Emily was different. She seemed apart from it all, even as she sat at its centre. The others would pick at their food, scraping hummus up with carrot sticks the size of child's fingers, and Emily would watch it all unfold with the passive eyes of an icon, gold in her hair. After work the first day, I took the tube to Oxford Street, my reflection shifting strangely in the dark glass. I'd arrived in London with almost nothing and had immediately stocked up on blouses, pencil skirts and blazers. <laughs> a child's idea of what women wore in the city. I felt hot and stupid at the thought of them. I needed slouchy ankle grazers, brogues, men's shirts, a messy bun. I shopped until I ached and came in the next day with red-touched eyes, perfectly done in smudgy brown coal. I shrugged off the morning's compliments, claimed this was what I always wore. All the while, the pristine plastic smell of newness hung around me like an accusation, jarring with Emily's warm vanilla scent. There was a girl in the office, an intern whose contract ended a week after mine began. A small constellation of freckles littered the bridge of her nose, a memory of summer on her skin. She wrinkled her nose when she laughed, freckles twitching. For a week I tried not to see, swallowed hard and averted my eyes. Emily lent me peppermint tea to settle my stomach. The smell still reminds me of freckles on tanned skin. Emily took me along to the girls leaving drinks. She left on a Friday. On Monday morning I examined myself carefully in the mirror before getting out of the lift, baring my teeth to check the cracks, plumping my hair and unstraightening my jumper. I went to Emily's desk and thanked her for the invitation in the easy, smiling way I had practised all weekend. She said it was nothing, and the bass notes of her smile vibrated in my chest. I think that was when Emily decided to take me under her wing. Perhaps she sensed the loneliness that underlay my gratitude. <laughs> Whatever the reason, after that, she made a point of including me whenever she and the girls, as they were invariably called, spent time together. I'd never had female friends before. We moved around a lot when I was young, never staying in one place more than a few months, and boys were easier to fall in with. They had fewer rules, fewer lines to memorise. When I got older and boys became difficult and strange in their own ways, I let myself drift out of tune with people altogether. At all the schools I went to, the girls loved more fiercely than I knew was possible. They laughed so loudly at each other's jokes, they hugged one another so lightly when they cried. I stood in the corridors in my never-quite-right uniform, back pressed hard against the wall, watching the intricate, unpassable language of their bodies. My tongue pressed against my teeth and wet, and I remembered the story of doctors in the First World War who sewed their patients' tongues to their cheeks so they wouldn't choke on them. I swallowed, 
tasting iron. Being with Emily and the girls left me giddy with rebellion. I was a trespasser there among those laughing, loving women. Together we sat at high tables and pushed our food around our shiny tiffin tins with biodegradable forks, each of us playing in turn the confessor, the priest and the prayer. My stomach twisted with hunger, but I was so happy that I swallowed water from my steel canteen and let the coldness numb me. We swapped stories about bad dates, bad sex, bad bodies behaving badly, absolving each other of guilt with offerings of our own. And always at the centre of everything sat Emily, the light striking her cheekbones like an altar bell. It was someone's birthday. Lizzie, perhaps, or Lottie, or maybe not. We lined up in the bathroom after work and got ready. It was my first introduction to the ritual of getting ready, and I fairly flickered with excitement. The smell of perfume and creamy foundation filled the air. I had my own small bag of cruelty-free products, confident in my use of them after a long weekend in front of YouTube tutorials. Emily caught my eye in the mirror and smiled. You've got such beautiful skin, she said. I've got a lipstick here that's just your colour. Do you want to borrow it? I could have taken it from her. Instead, I stood still and begged myself not to tremble as Emily laid her fingertips on my jaw, holding me in place. The thin skin of my lips caught and pulled against the surface of the lipstick as Emily dabbed it gently into place. I scarcely breathed. The tip of her tongue rested at the corner of her mouth, shining wet in the bathroom light. After a century or so, she stepped back to admire her handiwork. Have a look, she said. In the mirror, I avoided my reflection's eyes with childish superstition. My lips were bruised red, bloody purple that made my skin bright and golden. I thought of children crushing handfuls of blackberries into their mouths, the wet burst of skin between teeth. Sweetness swallowed and coating tongue and tooth and throat. <laughs> oh, I look like a vampire, I said. And when Emily laughed, so did I, making fine wrinkles across the bridge of my nose. In the bar, we ordered sweet potato fries that nobody would eat and more bottles of wine than we could afford. We spent hours there, drinking and laughing. A man started to talk to me and I let the flattering wash of his conversation drift over me. His photography, his degree, the books he was reading. His teeth flashed, small and sharp. He had nice lips. I, I thought the same pink as the tips of his ears. <laughs> when he asked me if I wanted to grab a taxi together, I figured... Why not? I turned to say goodbye, 
Most of the girls had slipped home by then. With a start, I saw Emily watching me, unblinking. She wasn't smiling. At first, I thought she was angry, but then I realised it, it wasn't that at all. I knew that look. I'd, I'd seen it in the eyes of every woman I'd ever known. She looked... hungry. I licked my lips, swallowed. Emily's eyes darted to follow the movement of my throat. Then the young man's hand was at my elbow, leading me towards the door. In the taxi, I leant my head against the window and willed the streetlights to stop streaming. My stomach rumbled so loudly that the young man heard it from his seat beside me. Oh, I couldn't even bring myself to be embarrassed. The night had lost its glamour, leaving behind the stale taste of inevitability. He asked if I wanted to get something to eat. Oh, I was fine, I told him. I'd wait. I woke up sticky and exhausted. My mouth was dry and tasted foul and my head was ringing. I'd hardly slept, though I'd crawled under the covers as soon as the young man was gone. I showered, using the same soap Rosie and Ellie used. Vegan and organic, packed with dried flowers. <laughs> I don't think it smelled as good on me as it did on them. So My skin didn't warm the scent in the same way, didn't wafted it into the air so I left sweet ghosts of myself behind me. I have never wafted in my life. Afterwards, I stood naked in front of the mirror, trickles of water creeping down my neck. I ran a hand over my stomach, flat and taut between the jut of my hips. It rose and fell, as I breathed, the only sound in the room, I wet my lips and practised smiling. I got to work on time and even looked half presentable, <laughs> but the night still had its teeth in me and my day was dogged by an unpleasant, slippery feeling, like looking into deep water and seeing something far below moving against the current. I steeled myself, nursed a barocca and laughed weakly at people's jokes at my expense. At lunchtime, we straggled out of the office, determined to treat ourselves. The hot smell of the noodle bar made my mouth water. The girls fell too, all thoughts of vegan, keto, 5.2 forgotten, sauce flicking from the tips of their chopsticks as they slept. They were ribald and raucous and much too loud. My young man had not gone unnoticed and at any other time I would have relished their amusement and attention, but I could feel the weight of Emily's eyes on me, the reaching smell of food, the lifelong habit of shame. I folded my arms around myself and tried to smile, but it came out 
watery and thin. The conversation turned to the topic of guilty pleasures. From music to films to books to bubble baths, there was hardly any pleasure the girls couldn't feel guilty about. When we got into specifics, a masochistic strain emerged. One girl admitted to a penchant for men almost twice her age. The thrill of their desire made sweeter by the salt of her revulsion for them. Another said she loved to cry, to sit on the sofa for hours at a time, sobbing her heart out. She laughed at the thought, high and sudden, then quickly snuffed it out. I get it, said Emily. It was the first thing she'd said for almost an hour. I raised my eyes. She was looking straight at me. Shadows under her eyes and at the hollow of her throat. Catharsis. Just letting yourself go. The way she said it reminded me of my mother. A sharp, angled woman with a voice like violins, citrus sharp and yearning. I saw her. In the tautness of Emily's expression, lips pressed thin and tight against things better left unsaid. I hadn't thought of her for years. Late that night, I stood in the kitchen in the dark and swallowed my shame. I left the lights off, pretending that if I couldn't see what I was doing, then it didn't count. Tiles were cold, but I hardly felt it. My fingers trembled faintly as I reached into the bowl. They were cold too, always, and the heat of my lips was startling as they brushed against them. My eyelids fluttered shut, heart skipping at the taste. My tongue ran decadently over the sweet, hard morsel, exploring the shape and pressing it against the roof of my mouth, small and sharp. I shivered at the touch, illicit and delicious. I began to suck the thing smooth, my tongue a wave against its shore, soothing the edges before I swallowed it whole. Lost as I was, I almost didn't hear the knock. The edge of it caught my attention and I froze, listening hard. It came again, a little louder now. I swallowed hard, the lump catching in my throat. She'd found me. I drifted, dreamlike, to the door, keeping the lights off as if to keep myself from waking. The streetlight framed her hair in golden halation. She, she was tired, high points of colour in her cheeks. Come in, I said, and she stepped inside without looking me in the eye. I led her into the living room. She wore a coat and scarf and her hands shook as she unbuttoned, unwound and revealed herself in drifts.
I could hardly breathe for wanting her. She smelled of night air, warm skin, vanilla. When she sat down beside me, the heat of her body made me shudder. I tried to apologise for my t-shirt and underwear. It was the middle of the night after all, but Emily wasn't listening. She was looking at her hands, fine-boned and fragile. I fell quiet, waited. I've always wanted... She began and trailed off. She laughed, a breathy little thing, something like a shrug. I've always wanted... I reached out, tilting her chin to make her meet my eye. She was numinous in the blue dark. I know, I said. I know. Tears sprung to her eyes and she let them fall, collapsing under her relief. I leant close, my hands cold against her wrist. I knew. I felt it ever since I was a child, the thick surging hunger rising from the very pit of me. I pressed my face to hers, cheeks wet, though I didn't know whose tears they were. Emily held me tight, her fingers pulling at me but with no strength behind them. I opened my mouth, red and wanting. She tasted sweet as iron. And when she screamed, it sounded like the Agnes Day. Thank you for listening to Parallel Worlds Issue 10. If you'd like to read these articles and more, why not consider becoming a patron? There's a link on our website, www.parallelworlds.uk. This issue featured articles written by Angus McNichol, Ant Jones, Ben Potts, Carissa Liberatore, Chris Cunliffe, Christopher Jarvis, Connor Eddowes, Helen Rose Owen, Lewis Calvert, Sam Long, Thomas Turnbull Ross and Tom Grundy. With special thanks to Daniel Mersey. It was edited by Tom Grundy. This audio edition featured the voices of Christopher Jarvis, Jamie Sugar, Kai Zen, Kareem Cronkley, Peter Wotherspoon, Sarah Goldie and Tom Grundy and was edited by Peter Wotherspoon. Music was composed and performed by Dustin Midnight Driscoll. We would like to thank our patrons for their support. For copies of back issues of our magazine and podcasts, visit our website at www.parallelworlds.uk. 